Thank you, Renee. I'd like to have us turn to our text for this morning, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And we're continuing our uh, Lenten sermon series that we began last week. Uh, Last week we looked at actually a text uh, just after this one, Luke uh, 19, the beginning of that chapter, and the story of Jesus' encounter with the tax collector Zacchaeus. And we talked last week about how Lent is a a season and a time for us to reorient our desires uh, back towards God, recenter our lives around him and renew our relationship with him. And we're continuing on in that by looking at some aspects of that this morning, uh, specifically how our pride ought to transform into humility. So Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, this is what Luke writes to the Christian believers back then as well as to us today. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and said, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but instead he beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, I am not a very fun person to watch TV with, okay? I say this for a couple reasons. Uh, First, I'm one of those people who likes to overanalyze things. So you know, Sarah, my wife and I, will sit down to watch a a TV show or a movie or something like that after it's over. You know, she'll turn to me, ask me what I think, uh, what I thought about it, and I'll say something to the effect of, well, you know, it was okay. I thought it was funny. Uh, but to be honest, there was a lot of postmodern relativism in it. And, uh, and then I sort of go off on some long tangent waxing philosophical about how said TV show or movie promotes a contradictory worldview to the Christian faith. And I'll suffice it to say that Sarah no longer asks me what I think about the things that we watch. And that's actually related to the other reason that I'm not a lot of fun to watch TV with, which is that I tend to spoil it. You see, because I like to analyze things, often I can kind of figure out what's going to happen in a TV show or a movie before it actually does. And I have a habit of guessing at that out loud right before it happens. So Sarah and I will be watching something, the tension will be building, it's all about to come to some sort of crossroads or climax, and that's when all of a sudden I'll say something like, this is going to happen next. That character is going to do that. This is how I think it's all going to turn out in the end. And it understandably drives Sarah nuts. Can't we just watch the show, she says? Not when you're watching with me. Every once in a while, though, there's a show that sort of throws me for a loop. As much as I try to guess and figure out what's going to happen, what the different characters are going to do or what they're going to be like, uh, I can't. For instance, one of the recent, uh, there's about a million of them now, Marvel TV shows, Loki did that. No matter how hard I tried, I just couldn't figure it out. 
Well, that's actually how Jesus' listeners would have experienced and felt about this story too. You see, here in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a story, a parable, a short story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And like me watching TV, Jesus' listeners would have assumed that they knew how this story was going to turn out. Um, They would have assumed that they knew what the characters were were going to do and, and how it was all going to end. The only problem, though, is that like Loki and other shows that sometimes trick me and keep me guessing, Jesus actually does the same thing to his listeners here. This story doesn't turn out the way that they expected. It doesn't end like they would have thought, and the characters don't end up being who they would have assumed they were going to be either. You see, in that time and culture, Jesus' listeners would have assumed that the Pharisee was actually going to be the hero of this story here. That's because despite their reputation these days, the Pharisees were actually pretty well respected in first century Jewish society. Um, For starters, they were lay leaders. So unlike some of the other religious leaders that we read about uh, in in the Bible, um, the full-time religious leaders like the priests, the Levites, the teachers of the law, and the scribes who were paid to have that sort of role, the Pharisees uh, were actually mostly middle-class businessmen who studied the Torah, the Jewish uh, law, and the Jewish scriptures on the side. And so as a result, they were often admired by other Jewish people. Because they worked jobs like everyone else and weren't paid kind of as full-time religious leaders and yet still took their faith seriously. They served as an inspiration of sorts for other Jewish people to take their faith seriously too. It's kind of like how I think in, in the church today, we have respect certainly for pastors and theologians, right? But I actually think we have more respect often for lay leaders in the church who also know scripture well, who also maybe know theology about as well as a pastor or a theologian would. At least I have respect for those kind of people, right? Because they're not paid to do that full time and yet they take it really seriously and that's inspiring, right? Well, that's what the Pharisees were like. And because of that, because they were lay leaders who came from a more blue-collar or working-class background, they were also kind of seen as the people's party among the various Jewish leadership groups at the time. While others, like the Herodians and Sadducees, were made up of upper-class aristocratic types who had made deals with Rome and had sometimes actually even bribed their way into their positions of influence and power, the Pharisees were seen as the representatives of the common folk but simply because they lived and worked among them. When it came to making leadership decisions or policy changes in Jewish society, the Pharisees were often the ones who were advocating for the views of everyday people. And so despite their high moral standards and strict interpretation of the Old Testament, which was at times oppressive for others, the Pharisees were still often liked and respected by the Jewish population. Sure, they might have put a heavy set of religious expectations on people, but at least they advocated for and represented those people's views and positions. And that at least won the Pharisees, the Jews, respect. The tax collector, by contrast, would not have been a well-respected person in first century Jewish society. And we talked quite a bit about this last week, right, when we looked at Zacchaeus. But put simply, tax collection back then was done through a system in the Roman uh, Empire known as tax farming, where the Roman authorities basically gave tax collector positions to whoever promised them that they would get them the most money. 
And so as a result, it was a system with constantly changing personnel as tax collectors tried to outbid each other for those open positions. There were fluctuating tax rates and there was ever more constant pressure on everyday people as Rome squeezed more and more money out of them. It was also a system, like we talked about last week, that was full of corruption and abuse. Because both the tax collectors and tax rates were constantly changing, most people didn't actually know what they owed in their taxes each year. And so as a result, tax collectors could more or less just tell them whatever they wanted. Yeah, um, you owe 180 denarii this year. Really? That's a lot more than it was last year. Yeah, well, you know, the tax rate went up and it keeps going up the more questions you ask. So why don't you fork over that 185 denarii and we'll just call it good. That's often how it worked. The tax collectors would regularly collect more than they needed to, extra on top of what they should have from people. And then they would turn around and they would pay Rome what they had promised and then they'd keep the rest for themselves. It was an easy, if illegitimate way to get rich quick. And as a result, as I'm sure you can imagine, tax collectors were despised. Um, despite the strong commandment in, uh, in the Ten Commandments to not bear false testimony, most uh, religious teachers and, and uh, um, sort of uh, those who studied the Old Testament at the time, they actually made an exception for tax collectors. People were not only allowed to lie to their local tax collector, they were actually encouraged to do so. Yeah, I didn't actually make that much this year, um, so I don't owe that much, right? Um, not only that, but tax collectors were considered unclean. Jewish uh, law and Jewish society had very strict codes of conduct as, that related to what were called the purity codes of the Old Testament. And so there were certain people who were considered unclean in Jewish society. And one of those purity codes had to do with association with Gentile or non-Jewish people. Put simply, if you regularly associated or interacted with non-Jewish or Gentile people, you were considered unclean. Well, because of the nature of their job, tax collectors were in constant contact with non-Jewish Gentile people. They were constantly working with their Roman overlords, their Roman bosses. And so tax collectors were considered more or less permanently unclean in Jewish society. That's why, for instance, in the New Testament, we often see tax, collector, tax collectors lumped in with others who would have been considered unclean too, like prostitutes and sinners. They're sort of blanket terms. Prostitutes, sinners, and tax collectors, we often see the three of them go hand in hand because that's the level that tax collectors were on in Jewish society. Finally, tax collectors were also seen as traitors. That's because while they were local Jewish people themselves, they worked for the occupying Roman authorities that most local Jewish people despised. Most first century Jews viewed Rome as an illegitimate government. Sure, Rome had invaded, they had conquered Palestine, they'd taken it over and made it one of their provinces, but most Jewish people assumed it would only be a matter of time until God would intervene, kick the Romans out, and restore a sort of Davidic Old Testament kingdom with Jewish kings as those ruling. And so as a result, most Jewish people refused, whether in big ways or small, to cooperate with the Roman authorities but not tax collectors. Far from not cooperating with them, they actually colluded with the Roman authorities. In other words, tax collectors were sellouts. They were collaborators. They were in bed with the Romans and had taken their side against their own people. 
one of the series recently that Sarah and I watched on Netflix that I didn't really have to overanalyze all that much uh, because it was simply a historical docu-series was World War II in color. Um, it kind of retells some of the, the big um, events in World War II. And one of the episodes was all about wartime Paris. Now, if you know any of uh, uh, World War II history, then you know that France fell pretty quickly to the Nazis in World War II, uh, much faster than people expected. And as a result, the Nazis put France under uh, a friendly government uh, to, to the Germans. And, uh, and so Paris was kind of considered the jewel of France, and, and the Nazis wanted to preserve it. And so they had this, this government that was very friendly to their occupation there in Paris. And a lot of people resisted. There's a lot of stories about the resistance fighters who worked underground to resist Nazi, uh, the Nazi authorities, but a number of French people also colluded and collaborated with the Nazis. In fact, it was kind of interesting. Um, some of them are names that we still know today. Coco Chanel, who was the founder of the French uh, uh, fashion house by the same name, Coco Chanel. Um, she was actually a known Nazi collaborator. In order to preserve her wealth and her influence and her business, she worked very closely with the Nazis. And that's what tax collectors were like back then. They were collaborators who worked with this foreign power against their own people. And so as a result, tax collectors were viewed among the lowest of the low in first century Jewish society. They were despised, rejected, avoided, and disdained, and other people made sure that they knew it. And so, with all that context in mind, you can see how Jesus' listeners would be surprised by the way that this parable, this story unfolds here, right? You see these two men, one a respected righteous Pharisee and the other a despised, disdained tax collector, go up to the temple to pray. It would have been either nine in the morning or three in the afternoon. That's because that's when uh, the, uh, the priests there at the temple would offer the twice daily sacrifice of atonement on behalf of, of the people of Israel. And during the elaborate procedures that went along with that sacrifice, other people would gather there in the temple courts in order to pray to God. And so these two men go up to the temple to pray. The tax collector stands at a distance, far from the altar itself. This isn't actually all that surprising because the Mishnah, which was a commentary on the various laws and conduct codes of the Old Testament, stipulated that anyone who was unclean had to stand at a distance in the eastern gate and could come no further into the temple courts. So it'd be like if somebody showed up here to worship, but rather than come into the sanctuary, they just stood right at the doors there and didn't enter all the way in. That's what it would have been like. And so the tax collector here, as a permanently unclean person, like we just talked about, follows those protocols and stays at a distance. What is surprising, though, is that Jesus says that this Pharisee also stands at a distance by himself. The text says that he stood by himself, but he also notices this tax collector, which means that he stood far enough back to be right there by that gate right there by that tax collector. Why would a Pharisee do that? Normally they would want to be up front. Well, one commentator I read said that a Pharisee might do that if he was worried about being unintentionally defiled by an unclean person in the crowd. Again, like I just said, if you were unclean, you couldn't go any further than the eastern gate into the temple courts. But there was such a thing 
as being unintentionally defiled, where somebody might have touched something unclean and didn't realize that they did it and therefore they had become unclean, so they might be up there in the crowd. And so if the Pharisee rubs shoulders with that person, they would become defiled. And so it's kind of like righteousness on top of righteousness here. The Pharisee stands at a distance out of an abundance of caution to make sure that he doesn't somehow become defiled while he's worshiping God. In other words, the tax collector stands at a distance here to avoid making others impure. The Pharisee stands at a distance to avoid making himself impure. That's not the only difference between these two men, though, because their prayers are pretty different, too, right? The Pharisee's prayer here is actually an adaptation of a fairly common blessing that Jewish men recite every day. Every day in the morning, a Jewish man would have looked up to heaven, addressed God, and prayed the following blessing. Blessed art thou, O Lord, God of the universe, who hast not made me a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, who has not made me a woman, and who has not made me a brutish man. Jewish men would have prayed that blessing every morning back then. In fact, religious Jewish men still pray that blessing every morning uh, still today. And if you're wondering, by the way, what you would pray if you were a Jewish woman, it's a bit different. Uh, You would instead pray, Blessed art thou, O Lord, God of the universe, who hast made me according to your will. It's a lot less condescending towards men than the male blessing is towards women, but that's just because men's egos are more fragile. So that was a joke, people. And also true. Um, Anyway, the Pharisee's prayer here is actually a remix of this blessing, right? And you can hear it right there. Standing by himself in the temple courts, this Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. And then it seems he sort of looks around and he spies this tax collector standing there in the eastern gate. Or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. The tax collector's prayer, by contrast, is much more simple. Because beating his breast, he won't even look up to heaven. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And this is when Jesus unveils the surprise in this story. He tells his listeners, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. And like we said, this would have shocked Jesus' listeners. A tax collector justified over a Pharisee? How could that be? How could that happen? How could that be the way that this story ends? Now at this point, We just have to hit pause for a second and clarify a couple of things, okay? First, as multiple commentators point out, even though it turns out that the Pharisee isn't the hero of the story, we have to be clear about this. The tax collector is not really the hero of the story either. That's because while the tax collector might get his prayer right here, as we've already talked about, the mere fact that he is a tax collector means that he's still not the kind of person we should want to be or imitate. The rest of his life still leaves a lot to be desired. As Klein Snodgrass writes in his commentary on Jesus' parables, it's not like we can look at this tax collector and say of him, go and do likewise. He's still not the kind, a, a good model for us to live our lives according to. But neither is the Pharisee. And that might seem obvious, right? 
You know, it, it might be surprising to hear that Pharisees were well-respected in first century Jewish society, right? Because we tend to have a pretty negative view of them from scripture. But it's important for us not to turn into Pharisees ourselves. Because the, the problem is, it's very easy to read this parable and think something very similar to the Pharisee. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this Pharisee who judges other people. Right? That's very easy for us religious types to fall into judging other people in the very same way that the Pharisee does here. In judging the Pharisee, it's very easy for us to actually become him. As Fred Craddock writes in his commentary on this passage, the Pharisee is not a venomous villain and the tax collector is not generous Joe the bartender or Goldie the good-hearted prostitute. Such portrayals belong in cheap novels. If the Pharisee is pictured as a villain and the tax collector as a hero, then each gets what he deserves and there is no surprise of grace and the parable is robbed. In Jesus' story, what both the Pharisee and the tax collector receive is in spite of, not because of, who they are. That's grace when we get what we don't deserve. And so this leaves us with the question, what's really going on here? What's the problem with this Pharisee here? What's the saving grace of the tax collector? Why is it that one of them goes home justified before God, but the other doesn't? Well, the answer, I think, has to do with the fact that this story is first and foremost about pride and humility. Often this parable is lumped in with other parables about prayer, and that's what some people think it's really about. In fact, that's what the parable right before this one is about, and you could make the case that that's what the passage after this about receiving the kingdom of God like a little child is about too. But as one commentator I read put it, prayer doesn't really seem to be Jesus' main point here. Instead, the point seems to be the problem of pride. You see, that is the issue with the Pharisee and what he prays at the temple here. The issue isn't that he's a good person. He clearly is. I mean, he fasts twice a week. He gives a tenth of all he gets. He's so worried about being pure before God that he'll stand at a distance from everyone else. He's clearly a good person. And the problem also isn't that he knows he's a good person. While that might not be the best mindset for him to be in, that's not an unjustifiable offense. Instead, the problem is that the Pharisee is a good person. He knows it, and because he knows it, he no longer realizes that he needs God. Joel Green says something interesting about that in his commentary on this passage. Green writes, what is striking is that the Pharisee's prayer begins like a thanksgiving psalm, but never enumerates or lists the divine actions for which one is thankful. Instead, for God's acts, the Pharisee has substituted his own. This is how thanksgiving psalms work in the book of Psalms. You start by saying, God, I thank thee, and then you list all the things about God or all the things that he does that you are thankful for. And the Pharisee here starts out the exact same way. God, I thank thee, but then instead of listing anything about God, he lists everything about himself and all the things that he does that he is thankful for. In other words, this Pharisee no longer sees a need for God's justification because he believes he's already justified himself. 
He needs no action of God on his behalf because he thinks that his own actions are good enough. He needs no mercy, no forgiveness, no grace because he believes he hasn't put himself in the position of requiring any of that from God. The tax collector, by contrast, knows he needs them. In repentance and humility, he stands before the altar watching the sacrifice of atonement on behalf of Israel and he prays to God that that atonement might apply to him because he knows he needs it. Ken Bailey describes the scene well in his commentary, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. He writes, both the Pharisee and the tax collector are standing in front of the great altar on which a lamb without blemish has just been sacrificed for the sins of Israel. The tax collector stands far off, apart from the worshipers gathered around the altar, and watches the sacrifice of the lamb. He listens to the blowing of the silver trumpets and the great clash of the cymbals, hears the reading of the psalm, and watches the blood splattered on the sides of the altar. He sees the priest disappear inside the temple to offer incense before God. Shortly afterward, the priest reappears, announcing that the sacrifice has been accepted and Israel's sins are washed away by the atoning sacrifice of the lamb. The trumpets blow again and the incense wafts to heaven. The great choir sings and the tax collector, distraught and beating his chest, stands far off and cries out, O Lord, make atonement for me, a sinner. That's the difference here. The Pharisee is a good person. He knows it. And because he knows it, he no longer knows his need of God. The tax collector is a sinner. He knows it. And because he knows it, he knows that he needs God. In other words, the Pharisee's problem is pride. The tax collector's saving grace is humility, and it turns out that those two things make all the difference in the Christian life. And that's actually part of what this season of the church year, Lent, is about. Like we talked about last week, Lent is a season uh, of shifting our desires back to God, recentering and reorienting our lives around Him, making our, our relationship with Him a priority again but it's also a season where we're called to address our pride. That's because Lent is a season of confession. It's a season of repentance, a season of humbling ourselves before the Lord. Like the tax collector here, Lent is a time for us to recognize our sin, pray to God about it and confess it to him, and then ask for his mercy. You see, with its fasting and penitence, its humility and sorrow, its reflective yet bright sadness, Lent is a time to remind ourselves that we are, all of us, in fact, sinners. And because we're sinners, Lent reminds us that we need God. But there's one other thing that Lent reminds us of. It reminds us that we already have God. And that brings us to the gospel this morning. You see, Luke starts out this parable, this short story, by, by telling us actually who Jesus' audience is here. He says that Jesus told this parable to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Well, the fact of the matter is, as Christians, we are confident in our righteousness, right? 
We are confident in our relationship with God. We are confident in our status before him. But the only difference is that it's actually not our righteousness that we're confident in. Instead, it's Christ's. It's his righteousness, his sacrifice, his atonement on our behalf that makes us confident, that makes us right with God, that in his words here justifies us. That's the source of our confidence as Christians, not ourselves. It's like we just sang, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Christ humbled himself. He came down. He lived among us. He died for us. And then he rose to new life to give us that new life too. That's the source of our justification. And as those who have received that justification, we, like the tax collector here, humbly stand in awe of it. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, it is so easy for us to become prideful people. It is so easy for us to justify ourselves, to look at all that we have done, to lift that up before you, and to forget our need of you. And yet, God, as sinful people, we all stand in need of you, but you have not left us wanting. You have given us a Savior who has taken away our sinfulness and given us righteousness instead. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for how he has justified us and made us right with you. Heal us of our pride, Lord, and humble us so that we may live as your people. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.